Hello, my friends. I'm your host, Elle, and you're listening to Chilled to the Bone. Today, I am bringing you the story of an insane asylum that was the best of its time, but is now abandoned. We're talking about the Northern State Hospital. In May of 1912, a new mental health hospital opened in Cedro Woolley, Washington, 75 miles north from Seattle. This new hospital was called Northern State Mental Hospital. It opened due to overcrowding at the Western State Hospital, which is in Lakewood, Washington, 115 miles south of the new hospital. The city wanted to create a beautiful, peaceful place for patients to heal, so they hired some of the best in the business. The hospital grounds were designed by the Olmsted brothers, whose father had designed New York City's Central Park. The buildings on the land were designed by renowned architects Charles Saunders and George Loughton. Saunders and Loughton had designed buildings all over Seattle, including some of the buildings at the University of Washington. Although these two had worked together for years, two years after the hospital opened, their partnership dissolved and they went their separate ways. Perhaps this was an omen of some of the things to come out of their creation. Northern State Hospital first opened as a farm for nonviolent patients in 1910. Soon, more wards were built on the land, and the hospital officially opened on May 27, 1912. It was the largest hospital in Washington State. Although it had officially opened, there was still a lot of work to be done. Roads had to be built, drains and sewers had to be laid, and buildings had to be constructed. So, the most able-bodied patients were transferred from Western State Hospital to Northern State Hospital. Patients were put to work right away. Buildings continued to be added, such as an auditorium, a library, a bakery, a clinical center, a chapel, a morgue, and a crematory. There were barns to house the chickens, cows, horses, and any other livestock. By 1953, there were 13 housing buildings and 13 additional buildings on the 1,200 acres. Of those 1,200 acres, 700 of them were farmland. At one point, they had so many chickens, there was enough eggs for every patient to have an egg with breakfast every morning, as well as enough for the bakery to function. It also had one of the largest dairy farms in the state. The grounds were actually really beautiful. The buildings were big and white with lots of windows. Some of the photos showed a circular garden, a circular fountain, one of the front lawn and golf course. Between buildings were covered pathways. These photos are in black and white, but you just know that the trees and lawn would have been a deep green from the rain in the evergreen state. Northern State Hospital wanted patients to take part in vocational training by working the farm, dairy, printing plant, working in the gardens, the greenhouse, and all of this helped make the hospital self-sufficient. 
patients often worked seven days a week just to keep the hospital running smoothly. Patients actually seemed to like this kind of work. It seemed to give them a purpose and sense of accomplishment. However, in the 60s, this was outlawed and many of the patients became unhappy without work. Now, before I go too far into this story, I just want to mention that while some of the treatments Northern State Hospital used seem unethical in today's standards, they were doing what was considered best care at the time. While researching, I listened to a podcast called Tales of the Magic Skagit, and the episode I listened to was called Return to the Red Roof, the History and Legacy of Northern State Hospital. The podcast host spoke with MJ McLaughlin, the author of Return to the Red Roof, who had a family member who was actually a patient at Northern State. The host also talked to a man whose mother was a patient there for anxiety and depression. Both these people said that their family members were well cared for, that the staff was very compassionate, and the man even said that his mom received electroconvulsive therapy or shock therapy here, and his mom said that it was actually like the best thing she ever had done, and it really did help her. So while covering this case, I'm not blaming the staff for the most part with the medical treatment they do because they really were trying to help the patients. Unfortunately, that sometimes meant going with trial and an error, with error being a death of the patient. But overall, they were really trying to help and better the lives of their patients. And they were considered like cutting edge and doing the newest and best treatment that student nurses would be sent there to learn like the cutting edge um, techniques. So I'm not calling the doctors and nurses like evil or anything. They really just didn't know better. Okay, now that I got that out of the way, I will continue. So you might be wondering what kind of patients were at Northern State Hospital. There was quite the range from rebellious teens to people with depression. Women going through menopause were sent there because a lot of times their husbands thought they needed to get straightened out. Um, Alcoholics and drug addicts were housed there. And one woman has told her story about spending her time at the hospital. When she was in her 40s, as expected, she started to go through menopause. She began to experience some confusion and mood swings. Her husband took her to their doctor who recommended sending her to Northern State. Here, she was treated with shock therapy and insulin shock therapy, which I will explain about later. She said going through these treatments were horrible. She was sent back home shortly after, but any time her husband found her difficult, he would just take her back and they would readmit her based off of her husband's word, regardless of what she said. By the 1950s, 2,700 patients lived at Northern State Hospital. If you know anything about mental health hospitals and their history, you may think that this one sounds better than a lot of others. You might even describe this hospital as nice. Well, don't think that just yet, because mixed in with the photos of the farm animals and the beautiful architecture, 
there are photos of the electric shock therapy room and an insulin room. Electric shock therapy or electroconvulsive therapy is when electricity is applied to the patient's temples, giving them an electric shock, which was believed to kind of reset the brain. This electricity caused patients' bodies to convulse, sometimes so violently it led to spinal fractures. This is actually still used today, but done in a much safer manner. Current practice, known as modified ECT, uses muscle relaxers to avoid the physical dangers of the seizures and anesthesia to avoid any pain from the electricity, and they also use much lower voltages. So I had actually heard of electric shock therapy before, but I had never heard of insulin shock therapy. So when I first saw the pictures labeled as insulin room, I thought it was for diabetic patients, and I thought it was a good thing, but I was very wrong. So insulin shock therapy was introduced in 1927, and by the 40s, it was pretty commonly used when patients were diagnosed with schizophrenia. These patients would be injected with insulin multiple days a week, and the doses would gradually be increased. Once they hit a certain dose, the patient would fall into a coma. Often, these patients would experience seizures before and during these comas. There are reports of patients tossing, rolling, moaning, twitching, spasming, and thrashing around. And as you could probably guess, this procedure was very risky and could lead to amnesia. It continued to be very popular in the 40s, and about 75% of mental hospitals were using this technique. Although it was very popular, there wasn't a standard procedure, so each hospital would use different amounts of insulin and administer it at a different frequency. One patient who had this type of treatment, not at Northern State Hospital though, said, You get blown up and you go unconscious. I felt every time I took it, I was going to die. A nurse who worked at Northern State Hospital said that they did believe this helped and they just kind of had to learn through trial and error how to do it best. They did have a patient die during insulin shock therapy and so they just knew then not to administer so much insulin for the next patient and they continued to use this treatment even after patients had died. Another not-so-great medical procedure done was forced sterilization of the patients. This happened in mental hospitals all over the country, and it was said that sterilizing patients benefited the patients as well as society. They would often sterilize people that they thought were at risk of having children outside of marriage, and one patient who was sterilized said, "'What they did to me was sexual murder.'" Doctors at Northern State Hospital often performed lobotomies. For this, patients would be unconscious from electrotherapy or anesthesia. Then, the doctor would hammer an ice pick through the eye socket into the brain to sever neural connections. At the time, lobotomies were believed to treat depression, schizophrenia, and personality disorders. As you can imagine, having a hole in your brain might change how you behave, and because of this, 
the staff thought patients' personality disorders were improving. For example, a previous manic patient would be calm after the 10-minute procedure. Change personality was the lowest risk of the surgery because lobotomies could also lead to brain damage and even death. But just because they were now calm, it didn't mean that the procedure worked. And some patients who had a lobotomy were described as living zombies who would just sit there. Probably the most famous case of a lobotomy was Rosemary Kennedy, the sister of U.S. President John F. Kennedy. While Rosemary was not a patient at Northern State Hospital, her story is one of the better documented lobotomy stories, so I just want to share some of it. As a baby, Rosemary, or Rosie, seemed just like her older siblings, but as she grew, her mom could tell there was something just a little bit different with Rosie. She took longer to crawl and walk and do other activities. Soon, her younger sisters began to pass her developmentally, and that's when her parents accepted Rosie might need a little bit of help. She had difficulty keeping up in school and had to repeat some grades. Although she had struggles, Rosie was described as an affectionate and loving girl. Her family moved from America to London, where her parents sent her to a boarding school. This school had support for students with intellectual challenges, and she did really well here. At the start of World War II, the Kennedy family moved back to the U.S., and after this, Rosie started to grow rebellious. She didn't understand why she didn't have the same freedom her siblings had. And after getting caught sneaking out, her parents were worried for her safety and that she might do something to embarrass their prominent family. When Rosemary was 22, in 1940, her sister Eunice said she started to become increasingly irritable and difficult. The Kennedys continued to look for ways to help Rosie, and they soon learned about lobotomies. At this point, lobotomies were not accepted by the American Medical Association, but the family was desperate, so after being reassured by the medical staff, the parents agreed for the procedure to be done. It did not take long for them to see that the operation had been a complete failure. Afterwards, Rosie could no longer walk or talk, and her mental capacity was compared to that of a toddler. Now that Rosie needed even more attention and care, her parents sent her to an institution. After this, she didn't see much of her family, except for her younger sister, Eunice, who had a special bond with Rosie. Eunice later founded the Special Olympics in 1968. When Rosie's brother, John F. Kennedy, became president, he initiated legislation to improve the quality of life for Americans with disabilities. So while her siblings tried to make changes to prevent similar things from happening to others, Rosemary's life was taken from her through the lobotomy. One patient who had a lobotomy at Northern State was a boy named Phil. Phil was an only child born in 1929 in Seattle. At some point in his teen, Phil became a handful to his parents, which I feel like most teenagers do. But his mother grew desperate and began searching for medical advice as to how to handle her troubled son. Her doctor told her that commitment to a hospital might be a good thing. This might help him grow into a better adjusted young man. 
Phil's mother considered this, but she did not want to send him to Western State Hospital, which was the closest mental institution to where they lived, as she had heard the rumors of abuse and overcrowding there. She had heard about Northern State that it was better, so she decided to go visit. While there, she saw the peaceful and serene landscape. At the hospital, she talked to a lot of the doctors and explained the time she was having with Phil. And the doctors told her that they thought that Phil would benefit from being admitted. And so she agreed. In 1945, Phil found himself a ward of the state at only 16 years old. Phil underwent almost every form of therapy known at the time. And after three years there, when Phil was 19, they decided that he would benefit from a lobotomy. When the operation was done, it was obvious that it was not a success. Phil had notably decreased motor skills and his memory was pretty much gone. In fact, he had to be taught how to use the toilet again. So at this point, the hospital had to keep him because now he needed even more care than before. In later years, he claimed that he was physically abused by the staff. And the hospital had Phil working around things that he probably shouldn't have because it ended up losing him a finger and a thumb on one hand. After 27 years at the hospital, it was time for him to leave. Not because he was really ready, but because the hospital was being shut down. So, they sent Phil back to Seattle. At this point, his father had died, but his mother was still there. The world had changed so much since Phil went there at 16, and he didn't know how to live outside the hospital, so he ended up in shelters and living on the street. Someone found out about Phil's story, and they helped him file a lawsuit against the state, but he did not win. And he passed away in 1999. One of the less evil treatments was hypnosis, which was done mostly on younger patients. On record, there was a 17-year-old boy who was at the hospital for participating in homosexual acts. Because in the 20s, that made you insane, apparently. So a doctor put this patient under hypnosis multiple times and the doctor said that he was cured of his sexual deviance from this. Apparently, the patient would become physically nauseous when sexual acts between the same sex was talked about. This patient was supposed to stay at the hospital for 10 years, just for loving who they loved, but he did so well with his treatment that he was released early, and he just had to go back once a week for his treatment. A year after all of this, there was an update on him saying that he was engaged to a local girl and working on a farm. I'm sure he was just living the dream. In addition to the medical procedures, patients had other things to fear, such as other residents. While some patients were there for depression or going through the hormonal change of menopause, some were there for violent crimes, and there was at least one patient murdered by another between murder barbaric treatments and hopefully slash maybe natural causes over 1500 residents died while being treated at northern state hospital if the families didn't claim the remains these patients were buried in the cemetery behind the hospital in coffins patients had built in the carpentry shop some patients were also cremated and then put in aluminum cans with their patient number written on them Years later, after the hospital was closed, some of these cans were buried in a mass grave while others were sent off to a local dump. 
I found some death records of patients from the hospital. There were a lot of natural causes of death, such as strokes, heart attacks, and tuberculosis. Um, but there were some that seemed a little fishy, such as suicide by ingesting sodium hydroxide. There were also rumors that some patients committed suicide by jumping off the roof. Some causes of death were also general paresis, which is usually from untreated syphilis. One died from a fractured femur and a lot died of general paralysis of the insane. This is described as symptoms of mood swings, memory loss, headaches, fatigue, and dizziness. I didn't find any lobotomies listed as cause of death, so this is 100% me guessing. But I wonder if those who did die from lobotomies, um, their death was maybe listed as this general paralysis of the insane. Again, that's me completely guessing and I have zero credentials, so like take that with a grain of salt. But I'm just curious, like maybe... I found one article about a man named John Hesford who died from injuries after being beaten by some of the staff at the hospital in 1928. One day, Minnie Hesford was trying to visit her brother, but the staff wouldn't let her. They told her that they had to crush his chest to subdue him because he was fighting like an animal. A couple days later, the hospital called Minnie because her brother wasn't doing well. When she went to see him, she asked what happened, and he said, They tried to kill me, but they didn't. He told her that he had tried to help two guards who were getting a physical fight with a patient, and that the guards turned on him and knocked him to the floor. Minnie later quoted her brother, saying, Both guards kicked and stomped me like I was a dog. Hesford said after the beating, he was taken to his room and left alone until the next day. Minnie visited her brother the next day, July 10th, and on July 11th, 1928, she got a call that her brother had passed. So almost exactly 94 years ago, John Hesford died from the beating he received from staff at Northern State Hospital. He had been there for epilepsy, and on his death certificate, he they actually put that he died of epilepsy, but... His sister knew the truth, and some staff members came forward saying what actually happened. A nurse called Mrs. Hunt, who used to work at Northern State Hospital, told Minnie that she had witnessed brutality towards patients many times. Mrs. Hunt said to a reporter, quote, I don't think the public can conceive what actually went on at Cedra Woolley behind locked and barred doors. I've often thought of telling what happened there but I saw how matters were hushed up politically whenever anything leaked out about treatment of patients, so I did not say anything. But when Hesford was killed, I decided to tell everything I know to anybody authorized to make an official investigation. Mrs. Hunt said that she would testify if Hesford's family wanted to go to court. While the family did go to court over this, the end results seemed to be covered up, and I couldn't actually find what happened with that. A sheriff who worked at the hospital during this time said that he saw them burn Hesford's body in the furnace after he died, and because of this, he quit the very next day. So, clearly, there were some monsters working at the hospital, but it seemed like there were also a lot of good people working there. 
A man who had worked there said that there were bad eggs, but they were few and far between, and most of his fellow staff was upstanding. He said he worked the job for several years, but things started to get to him, such as when people were committed under false pretenses. He said he took care of people who were just as sane as anyone else roaming the streets. One day, a man was admitted by his son, and this staff member helped this new patient escape. When the man's daughter came from out of the state, he told her to get her father out. He told her to ask the hospital for permission to take him off of campus to visit the city. So the hospital allowed this, and she took her dad out of Washington never to return. Even with all of this, Northern State Hospital was considered one of the most respected mental hospitals in the country, and it remained that way until it closed in 1972. You might be thinking that it must have been closed down because of it being inhumane, but no. It was closed due to funding, and the other two mental hospitals in the state, Western State Hospital and Eastern State Hospital, remained open even though they had worse reputations. They are actually still open today. Eastern State Hospital is located in Medical Lake, Washington, which is really close to Spokane, Washington. And I went to college in Spokane, so I've actually visited the outside of this place. And it was pretty small from what I remember, so I'm surprised they didn't keep Northern State open since it was the biggest, nicest, and newest. As Northern State Hospital was closing, the remaining patients who weren't ready to be discharged were transferred to Western State Hospital, while over 100 patients were discharged, and some of them were just dropped off on the streets of Seattle. Author Jeannie Beckett Packer has a blog on Northern State Hospital. She talked to a woman who was assigned with the task of deciding what to do with the patients being discharged when the hospital was closed. This woman remembers one specific patient who was in her mid-50s when the hospital closed and had been at Northern State for over 40 years. They couldn't find any living relatives, and so what the state did for her was get her on social security, set her up in a motel, and just leave her there, and they don't know what happened to her after that. The grounds were abandoned pretty much overnight, with only a few groundskeepers taking care of the buildings and land. Typewriters were left on desks, medical supplies were left in drawers and cabinets. In the medical rooms, needles, scalpels, and scissors were neatly laid out as if waiting to be used, and to-do lists of tasks were left forever undone. Over time, the elements and nature reclaimed the land, especially in the cemetery. Of the almost 1,500 graves, only one had a headstone left. The cemetery had been built on the marshy area where no crops would grow, and this caused grave markers to sink into the ground. Over the years, the community has worked on finding the headstones in the earth, giving back names to the lost souls. While the buildings are officially closed to the public, the grounds are a recreation area that are open. So if you want to play disc golf around an old mental health facility, this is your place. People do sneak into the buildings, and ghost hunters have been granted permission occasionally to explore. But just a heads up, if you go visit and decide to sneak in, you can be arrested. And I won't be bailing you out, so you can't blame me. So I would recommend just staying on the outside and looking through the windows. For those who have explored, there are some reoccurring stories. 
almost everyone who's gone in say they feel like they're being watched and that there are cold areas throughout the building. People report feeling touched and the sound of footsteps that will walk right up to you and stop. People report hearing screaming and crying throughout the building. Many people have reported seeing a little girl playing with a red ball running through the halls and sometimes playing outside. After seeing the little girl, a lot of people report seeing a man looking for that little girl. Another common ghost scene is of a nurse hanging from a noose in the attic. Also in the attic is a nurse telling people to get back downstairs and that they're not allowed to be in the attic. Some of the buildings are being used today as dorms for job corpse training. A lot of the people staying in the old dorms have stories. One student said she often heard a little girl's voice when there were no children around. And that same student said that when she would go to her locker, she would often find her things thrown all over the floor. There's apparently one famous ghost named Fred, and he seems to be harmless and just likes to have fun. He likes to prank the students staying in the dorms by moving bedpans around and throwing sheets all over the place. One of the dorms used to be co-ed, but had to be made male only because there's a female spirit who likes to harass the female students, but will leave the boys alone. Students getting up to use the bathroom in the middle of the night have had their clothing tugged on and they feel like they are always being watched. In the gymnasium, sports equipment have been moved around randomly. In 1979, there was a crew of workers at the hospital going through the underground tunnels to check out all the pipes. At this time, the building had been empty for a little while, and the state just wanted to make sure everything was still working okay. So, on an overnight shift, two men were deep in the tunnel, and the lights went out. They knew that this was an old building, so they weren't too concerned and just started to use the lanterns they brought with them. Soon, they began to feel like they weren't alone down there. While they continued to check their pipes, their lanterns then went out, so they were moving through the tunnel in complete darkness. They began to hear a shuffling sound from behind them, and so they began to walk faster. The sound began to get faster and was closing in on them. They were now scared, and they began running, and they felt a hot blast of breath on their necks. As they were running, one of the men let out a scream. They finally got out of the tunnel system, and they noticed that the man who had screamed had a large bite mark on the side of his rib cage. They both quit their jobs right then and there. When the foreman got to campus, the men had already left. He found that the door to the tunnel was still wide open, but the lights were on. He went down the tunnel and found their lantern that had been completely crushed. With these types of stories circling around, people wanted to experience the hauntings for themselves. The groundskeeper got tired of all the break-ins and reached out to the TV show Ghost Hunters to debunk the haunting rumors. This backfired, and they actually obtained evidence that there were, in fact, spirits still lingering around the buildings. They found multiple cold spots, and the theory with this is that when spirits are present, they're drawing energy from the surroundings, and that results in a lower temperature where the spirit is. So in this TV show, the room was 68 degrees, but in one spot it was 55 degrees. While they were in the attic, the investigators heard humming, and they said that it sounded like it was turning into singing and that they could tell words were being spoken. 
on the recording, it only sounded like the humming and I couldn't tell any words. I will play the clip for you. The humming is kind of in the background and there is another noise, but that's just the sound of the ghost hunters walking. So here's the humming. It's not very long, so I'm going to play it for you one more time. On video camera, they recorded a transparent figure stepping into the hallway and then stepping right back into the darkness where it came from. When they showed the groundskeeper this, he couldn't deny that it did look like it was a spirit because you could see through the figure as it stepped in and out of the hallway. The ghost hunters said that it seems like the place is definitely haunted. I'm only about six hours from this hospital, and I really want to go see the grounds, but I would be so tempted to want to get inside. So if I go and I stop uploading, you'll know that I got arrested. <laughs> that is actually all I have on Northern State Hospital. If anyone has visited and has stories, please let me know. I do have friends up near Seattle, but they're not into any spooky stuff, and so they don't want to visit. So if you have stories, I would absolutely love to hear them. I know this episode is a little bit different than the last couple, and I will continue to cover mostly true crime cases, but I thought it'd be fun to throw a little something different into the mix. If you want to see pictures of this place, check out my Instagram, and I will also link the University of Washington's website in the description so you can look at even more pictures if you like. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please like and give this podcast five stars. It would mean the world to me. Also, please follow me on Instagram. I will be back next Thursday with a true crime case. I hope you all have a great weekend, friends. All right. Bye.